0: epilepsy, there is hope. Hey podcast listeners, Tori Robinson here for Epilepsy Sparks Insights, a podcast about epilepsy, epilepsy research, common comorbidities and all of the fascinating medicine and science behind it. I'm a person with epilepsy and I hope to help bridge that unnecessary gap between people with epilepsy, scientists, researchers, medical professionals and the public. So whether you are any of the aforementioned Epilepsy Sparks Insights is designed to help you learn more about epilepsy from the other side of the table. In the last episode, featuring Sammy Ashby, Deputy Chief Exec, and Jennifer Thorpe, Research Assistant of SUDEP Action, we discussed what SUDEP is, how one can minimise a person's risk, and the research that they are involved in. This week on the podcast, we're talking about neurophysiology and the role that a person in that sphere plays in the world of epilepsy. I shall be talking with Dr. Stuart Smith from Great Ormond Street Hospital to learn about him and his crucial role in the epilepsy diagnosis, care and even surgery. Clinical physiologists or neurophysiologists rarely get the credit they deserve in popular literature, so let's get asking Stuart some questions. Hello Stuart, so great to meet you. Please tell me about yourself and what got you into your profession.
1: Hi Tori, Uh, my name is uh, Stuart Smith, I'm a clinical physiologist in neurophysiology at Great Ormond Street Hospital and um, I've been in my profession for over a decade now. Originally I was uh, a biologist, I did an academic degree at St Andrews University. And then after that degree, I joined a training program with the NHS, where I moved down to Liverpool and trained at the Walton Centre for Neurology and Neurosurgery. And uh, yeah, I was just fascinated uh, about neuroscience. And uh, I have to be honest with you, I wasn't particularly interested in epilepsy when I was studying biology. But outrageous! As, I know, outrageous. But I think it's because <laughs> it was. I think it was because it was taught quite badly. And it was just, uh, you, you won't believe, lots of old terminology, petty Mal, Grand Mal, oh. you know, this is what a seizure is. And and really, I think when you really explore epilepsy, uh, different seizure types, generation of seizures, and, and the effect it has on, um, on people, uh, you really, uh, it's just a really exciting and interesting topic. And I think it's, well, it's, it's like one of those kind of frontiers of neuroscience. If we uh, understand how seizures are um, produced in people uh, and its effects that it has on the brain, we might have a better understanding about the function of the brain. Um, so, yeah, I just find it really fascinating.
0: And do you know what, backing up what you've been saying about it being exciting, I found exactly the same and the work that you do and other people do in neuroscience and neurology gives us something really cool to think about, gives us something mm-hmm. to focus on us as being people with the diagnosis. Mm-hmm. So great. So tell us about an EG, because this is kind of like your job, right? So tell us yeah, what you so do with EGs and patients.
1: How does I, it work? I, I, yeah, I think with EEG, like when the patient gets the letter, it all sounds very scary. We're going to use electrodes, <laughs> we're going to prep the skin on your head and uh, you're going to have to lie still with your eyes closed. And it sounds quite daunting. But really, EEG is a very simple and safe technique for recording brain activity. Uh, we put a series of electrodes onto the patient's head. It's prepped and it's you hardly feel the rubbing on the scalp with a little prepping gel. And we place those electrodes on. And then the ideal uh, situation for recording EEG is for the for the person to just really lie there with their eyes closed. They can fall asleep if they want to, but they don't have to fall asleep. But um, and why if... would
0: they do that?
1: Ah, so why would you the... have somebody
0: fall asleep or be awake?
1: Do tell. Yeah, so that's a that's a good question. So sleep, it's uh, really useful for provoking abnormal brain activity. So we use it as a kind of form of an, they call it an activation procedure. So there's other things that we can do during the EEG that provoke abnormal brain activities. Uh, One could be doing a deep breathing task uh, and another one can be looking at flashing lights and all of Mm -hmm. these different techniques that we use can provide lots of information for the doctors and uh, help to clarify what type of, if someone does have epilepsy one, to support the diagnosis of epilepsy. uh, And then also what type of epilepsy the patient has if they do have abnormalities. So it's really part of a jigsaw puzzle. In itself, EEG doesn't diagnose epilepsy, but it's, uh, it's just part of the jigsaw puzzle for the neurologist and at, and at the end of the day, it's down to your neurologist to make the diagnosis.
0: And what happens when you are later diagnosed with epilepsy or one is suspected of having epilepsy, but there are no abnormalities shown during the EEG scan?
1: Yeah, so there's, there's a proportion of patients who will have normal EEGs, both while awake and in sleep. But nevertheless, they still have seizures and for those individuals it is advised that they are kind of monitored either within the hospital or outside the hospital for a longer period of time just so we can capture those seizures so ideally we capture them on camera and at the same time with the recorded eeg and when we look at the behaviors the movements and the symptoms that the person experiences with their seizure on camera and we look at the eeg changes in association with that, that can give us a better idea about whether that individual has epilepsy. And in a way, it's a kind of gold standard. Capturing a seizure on camera should be the kind of uh, gold standard diagnosis. But in uh, some people, it's it's just not possible. And sometimes uh, the neurologist is the person who will just take the information in the clinical history about what that person has experienced, and then they come to a conclusion about whether that individual has epilepsy.
0: Cool. So can you tell us who are your patients, like what age bracket, and how exactly does what you provide in your work, how does that benefit them overall? Because I know your patients are a bit different, like nobody's the same, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. So like in my career, I've worked with adults and children. I've even worked with really <laughs> young, premature babies looking Aww. for seizures in, in newborn babies. But uh, in my work at the moment, I work, well, I, I do work with babies at the moment as well, but, but it's predominantly with children and uh, and with young teens and yeah we do eeg in those individuals for many different reasons sometimes it's to identify seizures sometimes it's to look for cognitive problems things like cognitive regression to see if there was a kind of a neurological cause behind that cognitive regression, which can be identified by abnormal brain activity, say when the child is asleep. But uh, yeah, on the whole, it's mainly epilepsy diagnostics. But I also am involved in pre-surgical evaluation. So in uh, individuals with epilepsy who don't respond appropriately to medication, and they have failed two or more drugs, it's quite likely that they get referred to pre-surgical evaluation program. And in that program, part of that is to have video scalp eeg video telemetry to capture the seizures to work out where the seizures are coming from and in some individuals we even go and uh, use invasive eeg recording techniques and uh, yeah it's quite complicated but uh, Mm -hmm. if we the surgeons uh, place those uh, electrodes correctly we can uh, work out where the seizures are arising from and then that's the possibility that that area of the brain can be uh, removed. And, uh, and there's a possibility that there may be seizure freedom in that individual. But it's a very long pathway, but uh, video telemetry can be part of that.
0: Also, can you tell me how you adjust the way that you work with these children if the child might have learning difficulties or, as yeah. you mentioned before, cognitive decline? How do you change your method? Yeah,
1: so I think for a lot of parents, it's quite unnerving bringing their child into the hospital, especially for a test where they have to sit still uh, for a long period of time. <laughs> but actually, we I struggle with that t- as well. So. Yeah, <laughs> so but we do adapt the test for children. So, one thing the child doesn't have to have the eyes closed for the whole test, they could have their eyes open, and we could still identify abnormal brain activity even with their eyes open. You know, it is. It would be handy for them to have their eyes closed, but we can play games with the child to get them to close their eyes to see if there's any EEG changes Aww. in association with that. We can turn the whole test into a game so the flashing light can be like looking at a camera having a photograph taken blowing <laughs> uh, doing the deep breathing technique can be blowing on a windmill or pretending we're making snow or blowing bubbles with uh, you know with the uh, the bubble foam. So there's many different ways to make it child friendly. And I think one of the main things is just about trying to make the environment for the child as calm and as relaxed as possible. And to, I think communication is really key, maybe not with the child, because sometimes the child doesn't really fully understand what's going on, but with the parents, because the children are very good at noticing their parents' behavior and then kind of reflecting that behavior back so I've seen it before the parents look nervous and then the children become very nervous and you can you can struggle to get the EEG done if the parents are very calm the child can be calm as well yeah it's just you have to tailor the test to the child and to the family but if you communicate effectively with the parents it's, it's, it's basically half of the battle
0: do you know what I completely from from the patient perspective, I can say like I've always found EEGs really interesting, even as a kid. Mm-hmm, and I guess mm-hmm. I must have been lucky enough to have a neurophysiologist who was good. He or she was cool. And they made me relax yeah. and nothing frightened me. They told me what was going on, what yeah. they were trying to do. They said, this is gonna scratch on your head a little bit. Sorry yes. about that. And I'll go, ah. Oh. And but then it's fine. And you just get on with it. And the more I find that you are able to communicate effectively with that patient, whether it be an adult or a child, the more relaxed they're going to be. And like you say, their carer or their mum or dad, they often need to, I think, chill a little bit because you're not harming their child. In fact, you're doing this for their benefit.
1: Sometimes I think, though, it's about the experiences of the parents had when they were children in hospital if they did ever go to hospital or they had interaction with a healthcare professional. And I think maybe in the past, there might have not been as many child-friendly situations and it was just, we do the test that needs to be done. Uh, things just are done. Whereas now, say like the motto of Great Ormond Street is the child first and always. So we always think about Aww. the child and think about what their needs are first. And I think that's a, just a really good approach to paediatric um a pediatric EEG.
0: Oh gosh, that's uh, he's making me all soppy. All right, so oh, <laughs> so Tammy, where where do you see neurophysiology going in the next one to five years?
1: So neurophysiology is, is a kind of a really interesting area of medicine, but I really, from my interpretation, I haven't seen it change that much over the years that i've been working in it however from my work in the in the world of research i've seen that a lot mm. of researchers are looking at eeg predominantly at resting state eeg so this is periods of eeg where there are no abnormalities and it looks like a normal background a normal kind of brain waves that we would see in a normal individual and some researchers are looking to see whether in individuals with epilepsy, there are some differences in the waveforms between people with epilepsy and people who are healthy. And there's a possibility that there may be subtle differences that aren't detectable to the human eye, but can be detectable using computational analysis. So I do think that could be something to look for in the future. I'm also aware of there's a lot of work being done now on long-term EEG, where individuals have electrodes implanted into them for a long period of time. And I know of one study where they're using electrodes that are inserted underneath the skin on the scalp, and they can sit there for a very long period of time. And they can record more information than you ever would within the clinical setting. And I think that um, maybe... There's a possibility that analysis of this data could reveal kind of interesting findings uh, about epilepsy, and they might be able to use this data for seizure prediction algorithms and things like that. So, I think there are big leaps to be made. Generally, though, I think it's going to take a long time. So, we might hear chatter about this over the next five years for it to come into the clinical setting. So, in your hospital, I would probably say it's a decade or even more. Well, who knows? You know, mm. I think it's just one of those things. It's a wait and see situation.
0: What drives you with your work? And why do you go to work every day? Well, not necessarily the office right now, I guess, but um, oh, the hospital. Are you going into the hospital right yeah, now? Yeah, I go
1: into the hospital. Yeah, I'm on the telemetry unit at the moment at uh, Great Ormond Street. We're seeing patients. So the you there? Yes. So things changed a lot during the lockdown. I was able to divide by work for one week in the hospital, one week working from home. And I was able to review EEG outside the hospital, which was quite a pleasant experience, but a bit odd because I'm used to working with patients all the time. So it was an odd situation. Now I'm back in the hospital and we're trying to restore normal services because people need it. The the waiting lists are still there people need to, um, or say children, you know, need to be assessed. And I think it is important that we try and restore normal services. It's just going to be difficult to do so with COVID around.
0: And What do you love about your work? though? Like, why do you stay doing what you're doing? Why do you uh, have a career
1: change? Well, I think part of my career change was doing my PhD. But <laughs> um, I don't, I don't think I would ever change my career now. I kind of feel like I'm going to be helping doctors acquire EEG and analyse it. And I would like to be involved in more research. It's just finding the right, right project, I think, to be involved in. And I think predominantly I would like to be working in neurophysiology, even though my research did involve MRI, neuroimaging and neuropsychology i think i'd probably go back towards neurophysiology but i i guess the reason why i'm so interested in uh, in staying in this car- in this career and in, in this field is that i do see epilepsy as a bit of a puzzle and something mm-hmm. that's kind of a difficult puzzle to solve and i think uh, it's you know solving this puzzle will have massive benefit for people and i think as i mentioned before i It is about people with epilepsy, improving people's lives with epilepsy, with seizures and the other issues that they have outside of seizures. But also it's just, I think, about understanding the functioning of the brain, which could have benefits to other things, say like other uh, diseases uh, of the brain or just general function of the brain. So I think it's just a really fascinating and interesting area. And I, I don't see myself moving on from it. I don't say uh, in, rec- in the world of research, some people start off in epilepsy, then they'll go to Alzheimer's disease and then they'll go to schizophrenia or something like that. But I can't see myself moving now from that.
0: Well, thank you for being involved. And also, I, I thought it's worth adding that. People like yourself, you're not just making a difference to these children affected or not affected by, I suppose, epilepsy, but also their mums, their dads, their their siblings, people at uh-huh. school, overall society, quite frankly, because epilepsy does have that impact. It's not only on the person who's having seizures or may have them hopefully controlled. No, for the future. It affects I, t- everybody. I totally
1: agree. I totally agree. The, the kind of the psychosocial components within the family group with children with epilepsy are, you know, the huge ramifications with seizures and with seizure freedom. Uh, the dynamics completely change. And yeah, you're right. It's not just the individual with epilepsy that we can help.
0: I heard that you have done some cool research on idiopathic epilepsy. Do tell.
1: Yeah, so um, over the last few years, I was studying children with Rolandic epilepsy, which is an idiopathic focal epilepsy of childhood. And I was looking primarily at seizure remission. So what changes occurred in brain structure and function between the time when they were having seizures and then afterwards when they're in seizure remission? and uh, we did this to kind of get a better understanding of whether there was a change in the brain that might have led to the remission of seizures so the seizure stopping and also in Rolandic epilepsy even though the seizures are generally infrequent in a large proportion of these children they can also um, mm. have cognitive problems so things like problems with coordination and movements speech and language problems and dyslexia and things like that and we wanted to see whether these mm-hmm. problems persisted into seizure remission so a lot of work was done on this we did uh, MRI scans of the patients mm-hmm. uh, which type of MRI uh, structural MRI and uh, okay. it wasn't just myself there was Dr Col McGuinty who initiated the project in the beginning but I was the person who took it over but yeah structural MRI scans EEG data mm-hmm. and uh, neuropsychology data so, yeah, mm-hmm. a lot of work was done and we found that there was altered development of the brain in the, the children with epilepsy compared to healthy controls in the left the frontal lobe, really, and area. And
0: how clear was that, these differences in development? Well, how clear was... the
1: thing is with research is that you take a collection of children and you collect the data from that collection and then you kind of put it all together and you look at group differences so something that maybe not apparent in one child may be apparent when you get a group of children together. So it's about trying to uh, mm-hmm. improve our ability to detect a signal in in the data. So it's really hard to really describe. But yeah, it's interesting because in the Rolandic epilepsy, it's called Rolandic epilepsy because they believe physicians doctors believe that the seizures originate from the central sulcus the rolandic fissure otherwise the rolandic fissure and actually mm-hmm. we were predominantly seeing changes in the brain that were different with the healthy controls far in front of this region in the brain kind oh, of gosh. suggesting that there may be a network involved in the generation of these seizures rather than there's just one region of the brain involved. So that was quite interesting. And what Uh, will be done with that data? Well, it needs to be published first. What happens is that you collect the data as a student or as a scientist, but your data needs to be processed, be written out in a scientific way. But this really importantly has to be checked by other people in your field. And that's Mm. called peer review. So peer review is try is a is a is a way of improving the quality of information produced by scientists. So I'm going to write my article about the findings that we discovered in by PhD, and then I'll go for peer review, and then hopefully it will get published. And then that will help another scientist who's looking into the same problem. Uh, so science it's quite frustrating. And I know patients with epilepsy probably want things to be a lot faster, but it's really important that science is slow and methodical and we do things accurately so that we can produce lots of good knowledge that can aid further science and to hopefully provide treatments and interventions for people with epilepsy.
0: Yes, treatments, interventions, and you never know, even preventions at some point. I mean... Imagine. Yeah.
1: well, that's that would be an amazing thing to find uh, some kind of way of identifying if someone was going to develop seizures and some way of preventing that from happening,
0: or even just in inverted commas, um, preventing say somebody from having tonic or tonic clonic seizures from. And I'm thinking of myself here. When I was little, I had absent yeah. seizures and focals, and it got progressively worse the older I got. But imagine yeah. if there had been a way. At that time, there was loads and loads of empirical evidence stacked up saying, do you know what? If we provide you with this treatment, that will prevent your seizures from becoming more frequent and from becoming more severe. How cool would that be? Yeah. And that's why we need people like you.
1: Absolutely brilliant. Yeah. I studied my PhD at King's College London and my supervisors were Professor Deb Powell and Professor Mark Richardson. And I had help from Dr. Anna Smith. A clinical psychologist and Dr. Colm McGinty, who is an expert in neuroimaging. And it would, and my research would have been possible without all the support from the Powell Lab and the Richardson Lab at Institute of Psychiatry. So uh, even though you get your PhD as an individual, it's definitely a team effort. And we need more people to go into research, either as researchers, clinicians, or even support staff, admin staff. The more people we have, the easier it is to conduct research.
0: So we need to get talking to politicians and say we need more funding for this research.
1: I agree. Yeah, I think key to one or a general component of, of research is the money. It's a large amount of money that's used in the studies. And it's about acquiring the sums and then spending it prudently and in an effective way.
0: Today, I thank Stuart Smith for such a great chat about the key role of clinical physiologists, neurophysiologists, explaining how crucial EEGs are, how he helps children chill when having them and indeed the value of research. For more information on Stuart and his work, check him out on LinkedIn at Stuart EEG or Twitter under NeuroSpindle. The Epilepsy Sparks Insights podcast is produced in London by myself, Tori Robinson, senior producer and founder of Epilepsy Sparks. Find Epilepsy Sparks and I on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn or Instagram or via our websites – epilepsysparks.com and ToriRobinson.com. We'd love to hear from you if you have any thoughts about today's show. Do subscribe to our podcast and know that we are always trying to improve what we are doing here for the programme. I'm Tori Robinson. Thanks for listening.